Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 61. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. Today's guest is the Wunderbar, the fantastic Hilby, the skinny German juggle boy. A wonderful entertainer who's popular at fairs, festivals, colleges, universities, and events across the United States and around the world. Before we get to Hilby, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers, their events and programs can be found at juggle.org. So check that out today. All right, get ready, drop everything, and listen to Hilby, the skinny German juggle boy. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 61, Hilby, the skinny German juggler boy. Welcome, Hilby. That's correct, and you said it correctly too. Not everybody nails it at the first try, skinny German juggler boy. Let me ask you a question. So how skinny do you have to be? If you were to put on weight, would you change the name or do you, continue, you keep your skinny frame so that the name always makes sense? Oh, I have backup characters. I have the obese Bavarian sword <laughs> on, on hand. But so far, so good. I'm blessed with a good metabolism. And uh, how, how tall and thin are you? What, what's your weight and height? What's my weight and height? Six foot two and 175 pounds. I think that's still in the realm of skinny, I would assume. Definitely, definitely. And where am I catching you at? I think I caught you backstage at a fair. Can you tell us where you're currently performing? Backstage, that's a dream come true. It's uh, more like at the horse stables at the Erie County Fair, but it is a backstage, yeah. It's a Erie County Fair in Western New York. Yeah, sometimes at those fairs, it's not exactly what you'd call a green room, unless it's a porta potty painted green. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Yeah, some, some are better than others when it comes to the amenities, but this one is a lovely fair, the Erie County Fair, and I'm, I'm lucky that I get to do some of the better fairs, I guess, you know, when it comes to comfort and audiences and, and places to perform, yeah. So tell us a little about the fair circuit. What makes a better fair? What are some of the fair nightmares, and what should we be looking for in what you'd call a, a good fair? But everybody has their own measurements. You know, for me, um, I judge fairs by temperature, like how hot it is, for example. Like, there's certain fairs I won't do anymore. Like, for example, the Delaware State Fair, and there's nothing wrong with that fair rather than the fact that the temperature are in the mid-90s in the summer and humid, and I just can't do the possible best show I'm capable of. So for me, I like the New England fairs just for the mere fact that the temperature is nicer. So that's one of the main factors for me. Then I do really like the New England audiences and the New York audiences. Another benefit is if it's close enough to home that I can perhaps sleep in my own bed. That makes for a good fair at this point in my career and life. And then I'm a big fan of fairs I've done before and come back because people respond to my show and they like to see it again. And I make friends and your audience becomes more than just your audience at some point. What fair have you done the most? What's what's a, a, an extensive run for you? Have you been back five or six times or? Yeah, I've done the New York State Fair 21 times, for example, in a row now. Um, I'm here at the Erie County Fair for the fourth or fifth time. Dutchess County Fair, I've done eight times. And then West Virginia, I've done four or five times. Even Delaware, before I decided it's gotten too hard, I've done like five, six times. Yeah. How many of the fairs are coverage situations? Often at fairs, they're what, out in the sun, they don't have any covering? Or do you often work indoors at fairs? I like to sell myself as a roving entertainer at fairs, even so I do a stationary show, because that gives me then the possibility to once again to do the best possible show. I can find the spot that's appropriate, and often you're allowed as a roving entertainer to set your own show times. So if it's a very hot day, for example, I can do more shows in the afternoon, I can find the spots that are shady. 
And what often happens after a few years, I do find the perfect spot, and then I do have scheduled show times for future years. Yeah, I think that's one thing that kept me out of the fairs. I did one in uh, uh, Santa Rosa, and it was also the schedule where it was like twelve o'clock, two o'clock, and eight o'clock. That's why you have in the contract the first show should not be further away from the last show than five to six hours, which is somewhat industry standards. But if you don't put it in your contract, it's an easy thing for a fair to ignore, and then they can schedule you like where the first, the second, last show is about eight hours apart. Yeah, and that's a drawback for some places. Yeah. And do you actually have like a walk around character? I know some people do like a stilts or some other additional thing to their act, or you just do your act primarily. I do have these characters, but I really just like to do my show. Like It's just like a street show, basically, um, but I'm paid. Yeah, that sounds nice. I didn't really realize that was sort of an option, because certainly when I do certain gigs, whether they're walk-arounds or where I have an option of being in shady spots or sort of picking when the, the best traffic flow is or when the best time there are for shows, yeah, it doesn't make it much more enjoyable than have a set time, especially if it's in the middle of the day out in the sun. And excellent. And you're absolutely right. And the fair will understand if you explain to them, look, this way I can do the best possible show and reach the most people rather than doing it at the scheduled time at one o'clock in the middle of the sun and then only 20 people get to see your show. And and I'm also honestly saying my show is very physical and a sweaty German who yells at you is not necessarily the most entertaining thing one can imagine. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit. Uh, we've sort of caught up with you currently in the whole fair situation. And I, I know what you're talking about because uh, there's, what did you say, 6,000 fairs before we talked? Yeah, so it's 6,000 fairs, yeah. How many do you do a year, would you say? I do about 50 days a year. I like to be very diverse, and 50 days is about as much as I can handle. And what other types of gigs do you do when you're not doing the fairs then? You know, I like to do a little bit of everything. So I do colleges. I There, was, there were a few years where I've done lots of colleges, like 50 colleges a year. Now I do about a dozen colleges a year. I do about as many schools a year. And then I do about 10 weeks a year on cruise ships as well. Well, it sounds like you're in a really good position. So let's backtrack to that little boy in Berlin. <laughs> so that's you were born in Berlin, correct? I was, uh, I was born in Wiesbaden, but then I grew up in Berlin. And what's the proper pronunciation of your first name? I wanted to call you Michael, but you said that wasn't quite right. The proper pronunciation is Michael, and, and Michael is, is the same spelling. And then Michael is the second most popular name in the history of name giving after Muhammad. And there's many different ways you can pronounce it. It was just a very important name to my father. And I always felt like I disrespected his wishes when people would call me Mike or Michael. And I don't want to be the guy who goes like, no, it's not Michael, it's Michael. You know, you don't want to be that guy. So I just used my last name, Mrs. Hilbig, and I changed it to Hilby. And it's been working. It's catchy. And then there's only one way to pronounce it the way I tell you. And then what did your father do? Did you come from a show business family at all? Or what was his profession? I'm first generation circus, as I like to call myself. No, both my family members and my mom and my dad, they were both blue collar workers, yeah. And what do they think about uh, your decision to follow in the variety arts? Well, my mom didn't believe me. She thought I was a drug dealer for the longest time because um, I, when I started traveling, I was somewhat poor and uh, I relied on the help from family members to keep traveling. And then I started sending money back after successfully street performing in Japan. So she thought I was selling drugs. She didn't believe me until she finally came and visited me. Now, and she was very proud. I must say she was very delighted to see that I made other people happy. That really filled her with joy. And my father was always from the attitude, if it makes me happy, then I do the right thing. Nice. 
And what was your childhood like? What was your upbringing like? What were your activities and interests as a child? I was very neglected in a positive way. Like my parents really didn't pay too much attention to me, to be honest. But that was also a good thing. I learned to take care of myself. I have a sister I get along really well with. So yeah, I, I really don't have anything bad to say. A great childhood, like great, awesome friends who are still in touch with and very independent. And where did you first see juggling? Where did that sort of enter your life? It's interesting because my mom, when I was about 11 years old, she once pushed me into a street show um, when the mime asked for volunteer. And I remember that being a really traumatizing experience. I really despised that experience. You know, I was blushing, turning all red and being mad and upset about it. I can't even recall what the guy did, but I do remember I was really upset about it. So if somebody would have told me back then that I would become a street performer myself one day, that would have been a laughable idea. So yeah. I said that was my one experience and then I learned how to juggle and I saw other people first time in Japan street performing. I saw Dave the Wave and Brian Halls, you might know them. Mm -hmm. And I was just amazed what you can do with juggling. Well, we've, we, we skipped over a bit though. So you, you got dragged into a street performance by a mime. And yeah. then, so you started traveling uh, before you got interested in sort of street performing yourself until the traveling came first? No, I didn't know how to juggle in Germany at all. And then um, I, I got a degree in social work and then I applied to continue my studies in universities, but my grades weren't good enough. So I had to wait for six months to get my spot at university. I decided to travel and I never came back. Mm. And then while I was traveling, I learned how to juggle. And I just fell in love with, with the idea of juggling and the art of juggling and, and, and also give you something to do. When you travel in Asia as a hippie, you have all day to fill and juggling is just a great activity. And there were lots of other people who knew how to juggle or learn tricks from others. And it was just such a great thing. And then rumor had it that like there's some people who could make money like juggling on the street. And for me, that was like magic. It's like, really, that's possible. I, now I found something I really, really love and I could perhaps make money with it. And then the journey began. Where did you do your first shows? In Japan? No, my very first shows, and I wouldn't really call them shows. Maybe this place would be a different explanation. Um, when you're in Asia, you already stand out as a tall, blonde German guy being six foot two, and then you juggle in public. You have an audience, and not necessarily because you're doing something um, entertaining, you're just different. And so I always was used to have people around me and and when I was in Pakistan for the first time, I remember my first time getting money juggling was in Pakistan at a Friday market and, and somebody threw a few whoopies in, in my juggling prop case. And I was just so delighted and, and I left the money in there. That was then a sign for other people to put money in. And I made enough money in India and in Pakistan, Nepal, consequently, to sort of like buy the vegetables and the food we needed for, for sort of traveling and continuing. So you were sort of an itinerant traveler and explorer in your early years, would you say? Well, explorer sounds a very romanticized version. It was just such an easy thing to do. And, and, and I really loved traveling in Asia. And I, and we, we hiked a lot in Pakistan and we bought bikes and we rode through Tibet on our bikes. It was very adventurous. Yeah, I wanted to see places. And I sort of always knew that a young age, that's the place you should do it. Because my parents somewhat always regretted that they didn't do the things um, they dreamed of all their lives and felt it was somewhat too late. So I was constantly reminded that if I do it, I should do it now. Any place stand out as that place you think, wow, if I could recommend anybody go to a place in Asia or in that area, you have to see, where, where's the place they have to see? You know, it, 
so many places are awesome for different reasons. It's tough because one place that pops immediately in my mind would be northern Pakistan, but it's not really the place you can go anymore and, and travel freely and uh, without perhaps fear of being kidnapped or whatever, you know. So, yeah, northern Pakistan for its beauty, India for its people, and then Japan for its food. And, I mean, there's so many. I mean, let's put it this way. There hasn't been a place in Asia I didn't like. Perhaps Bangkok is my least favorite place from all the places. So let's put it this way. The places I didn't like stand almost out more because all the other places were just beautiful and awesome in their own way. Yeah, India attracts me, but I'm also scared of India. It's, I think any place I have to get shots or inoculated, I, I find very scary. Oh, you want to Trust me. The person I traveled with, he was under that impression that if you don't invite the thought of illness and disease into your body, it won't hit you. And I was a bit more cautious, and I did get all the shots. And he got sick, and I didn't. I mean, I got sick too, but at least I had the immunization. It wasn't as bad for me. Yeah, you have to get certain immunizations. And another thing with India, you can't cherish your privacy and still have a good time because it's a very you you live very public there. There's not much privacy. And so that's it's sort of different than I know in Japan. Even though it's very crowded, there's a lot of privacy. People are very private. So in India, it's more of a culture where everyone's sharing and stuff. And it's in your face, India. Yeah. And if, if that's not your thing, and, and it is very rich in all other senses, you know, it's very rich in, f in flavor, food-wise, but very rich in smell, too, and not necessarily always the most pleasant smells, perhaps, either. You know, death is everywhere. It's a very amplified life, I found, India. So that's why I really enjoy it, actually. I think that's their travel motto, death is everywhere. Come to yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Now, I know you're very interested in yoga and uh, sort of a, that type of activity. Is that where that interest struck, struck you first in India? Or how did you get involved with yoga? Um, I had a friend, and I, I was my friend. I was in love with her. She was awesome, and she did yoga. And you know when you love somebody, you sort of try to adapt everything they do just to get closer to them. And she did yoga, and um, so I did it. And once you do yoga, the benefits are just so awesome, so lovely that you you will keep doing it. And I must say, I'm almost 50 now, and I haven't had many injuries in my career. And I think I attributed that to being flexible and doing yoga. So is it, is it a daily practice that you have of yoga? It's not necessarily. I stretch every day a little bit for a few minutes in the morning, but then I do extended classes, especially when I'm on cruises or when I'm traveling on my own. I have plenty of time, and there's great resources online. There's a website called doyogawithme.com, and they offer like uh, literally hundreds of uh, free yoga classes um, that are all different levels. And yeah, so I do it. I wouldn't say necessarily infrequently, but not consistently. But yeah, a lot enough that I can easily touch my toes. Yeah, I got into a Bikram yoga for a little bit, and I, I tried to do a, a hundred days a, a row of Bikram. Oh, what did you do? I didn't. I couldn't do it because I got this uh, disease called Grover's disease, which is when a white middle-aged man is exposed to too much heat. Is that a weird thing, or is that, that sounds so funny? It sounds like Grover would like the Sesame Street character. He couldn't take heat either. So you said Grover disease? Yes, it's called Grover's disease. It was kind of a rash that broke out on my chest. And I, I didn't know what it was. And then I, uh, I went to the dermatologist and they took a biopsy. But unfortunately, I did that before I looked on the internet. Always look on the internet first. Yeah. And Grover's disease is like when a middle-aged white man is exposed to the tropics or, or you know too much heat. And I thought, okay, that's me. I overdid it, first of all. by When I get into something, I get very obsessive. So I did it every day. And I was trying to go for 100 days in a row. But after like day 30 or so or 35... 
I realized that there was something wrong, you know, with this rash. And uh, so I, I quit. But uh, yeah, so always be worried about Grover's disease if you're, if you're doing the Bikram yoga. And of course, he turned out to be kind of a, the guy turned out to be very uh, uh, suspect, Bikram himself. Yeah, well, he's, a, he's definitely a character. They're going to write lots of books over. But for me, the Bikram issue was always that when you add temperature to it, you have the tendency to overextend. You extend further than you might should have in normal circumstances. So that's why I don't like to do it, because I overextend. So that's why I don't like the heat element of it. I guess that was the idea, that the heat allows you to be more flexible, gives you, it makes your muscles looser. I liked it because it was always the same. That's what I liked. It was everyone's always the same. Like they do the set pattern. You know, I do all types of yoga. I do Ashtanga yoga and so forth. And I've done my Bikram yoga too. So yeah, I don't like the idea that it's the same kind of um, pattern over and over again. Yeah, I like that because you can kind of get into it and sort of get into the more meditative aspects of it. Oh, I see the benefits and I don't take anything away from the people who do it and did it. But it's not, for me, it's not my thing. Like and there's so many other things. I mean, there's hundreds of yoga postures, you know, and for me, I like to explore them all if I can. Now, I looked on your website. You have a lot of things about breathing rhythmically. Is that something that you incorporate into your show? The person I wrote the thing with, he was always making fun of me the way I pronounced my S's. He always like I pronounced them as a Z. And so he's like, are you breathing rhythmically? Yeah. And then <laughs> I never became sort of a catchphrase. So that's it's more of a catchphrase than it's actually an actual practice. One of the beauty about yoga is it does sort of make you focus on your breathing and, and you take more oxygen in. And there's certain breathing techniques that you can apply backstage before you go on, especially if you're nervous and so forth, or if you need to calm yourself down. So I do believe in the in the techniques of breathing in order to achieve a certain state. It's not something I do on a regular basis, just if necessary. Let's talk a little bit about the development of your show, because you've developed a very particular character in a very particular direction. How long did it take before you sort of... Uh made the German aspect of your personality the, the forefront of your act? You know, it wasn't really something I went sitting down and like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. It sort of all fell in place by itself. The Lederhosen came um, first because I was doing a Renaissance fair about 20 years ago, and I remember wearing these fluffy pants and these fluffy shirts, and I felt so uncomfortable in my own skin. And the person I shared backstage with, told me that I'm an idiot, that I should just wear Lederhosen and get it over with, and I don't have to be uncomfortable. And I went like, yeah, ta-ta, there it is. And then even the name, the skinny German jogger boy, was given to me by a waitress on a cruise ship. She kept flirting with me while I was doing my show. She called me jogger boy, and then one day she called me German jogger boy, and, and one day she said skinny German jogger boy loud enough that the audience heard it. And they were laughing, and it's like, wait a moment. So I put these things all together. So it was more like an organic process that came from from everybody around me, rather than like it was born within me, necessarily. And how important was the juggling to you? I mean, was it juggling something outside of the act, like that you were very into juggling, or was the juggling kind of a, a vehicle for you? No, I love juggling. I must really say, like, people often told me, oh, you're a comedian, you should take the juggling thing out, you might have more possibilities. And I deny that request. I, I do love juggling. I have certain juggling routines. So for example, my three-ball juggling routine, it doesn't necessarily translate the biggest, it might not be the biggest crowd pleaser when it comes to oohs and ahs, but I put it in my show often because I just enjoy it so much. I love juggling. Oh, that's, that's good to hear, because some people, I think, especially if they've been doing it quite a while, it becomes just something they do that is sort of a, a purpose to it is making money or being in the show, but it's not something they pursue outside that they don't have to. So you still practice? 
I still practice, yeah. I mean, like, I don't have a routine necessarily where I say I practice, but now in Ithaca, where I live, we have a circus school now, so I go often to the open practices. I just uh, build a barn, so I have now a studio place to practice. And when I say practice juggling, for me, that, that means everything from bottle flipping to um, hula hooping and so forth. And to be honest, you were always an inspiration because I took your workshop at the Motion Fest, I don't know if you remember, quite a while ago. And I like what you did back in the days. You had that notebook and you had that philosophy of like, if you do anything five minutes a day over 365 days a year, you will know to play a song if it happens to be the piano. You know, you know, like a little hula hoop routine if it happens to be the hula hoop. And I always like that aspect, that, that idea that if you do something a little bit every day, it's all going to end up. So add up. Well, I've always liked the Renaissance Man concept. I've always liked sort of also fooling the audience in that if they see you play one song well on the piano, they just assume you can play many songs. Exactly, that's all it takes. And it's funny you mention that because I learned one song on the guitar really well. So like I believe <laughs> exactly that impression. And same thing when I was in Japan, I could do my show in Japanese where I really left the impression to people that I spoke Japanese fluently to their disappointments often I didn't. But I did enough to sort of like fake it through the show, yeah. Well, it's, it's show business in that you know, perception is reality to some degree. Absolutely, yeah. And you have a very good quote I really liked. I, I wrote it down from your website. If you can't hide it, paint it red. So that refers to your Germans, your Germanness? Yeah. My father used to always say that. He gave me two advices, and one of them was like, if you can't hide it, you highlight it, and never do two illegal things at the same time, and you'll be just fine. And both of these things were really um, valuable advice, and um, I've been living by them. And it has created so many new things for me, especially in my performance. So when, when something happens that might throw off other performers, like somebody walks through the audience or so forth, it, for me, I, I just thrive on it. For me, that's a gift. And then I see what I can do with it. And I, and I engage in that rather than like uh, retrieve and try to avoid it. So I go full on, head on, see what happens. Well, even though you don't do two illegal things at once, I have in my notes, you were arrested in Hong Kong. Is that a story you can share? Is it has it the statues of limitations run out? Yes, it turned out it was three illegal things at once. Okay, all right. <laughs> and I was in Hong Kong, and when I say street perform, I wasn't doing as much of a show as I I was just displaying my few skills I had. So, and um, I don't know if you've been to Hong Kong or the people who listen to the podcast have been to Hong Kong, but the place, the best place to do performances there would be the Star Ferry Terminal, where you go from Hong Kong to Kowloon Island, and that's somewhat of the one of the busiest places in the world, I would almost say. And But there was an English street performer, Luke, who became later on a really good friend. And he sort of had that spot for himself, and I didn't want to infringe. And one day, he came to me and said, well, I'm going to Japan. It's all yours. You can have it. And I said, like, awesome. That's great. What you forget to tell me is that he was warned um, about 10 times that if he shows up again, that he will be arrested. And then I showed up, and I looked to say in that sense that, I was blonde, I was a foreigner, and I was six foot tall, and I juggled. So right. <laughs> that didn't make any differentiation, and I got arrested, and mm. I spent the night in jail, and um, I got a black stamp in my passport, and I got deported, yeah. The black stamp was uh, basically a black stamp um, is that you are not allowed to return to the country. And I think I was one of the few people on this planet who celebrated when the Chinese then took over um, Hong Kong because that black stamp was then um, nullified, because that was why the English were still in power in Hong Kong. Yeah, I've been to uh, Shanghai, but not Hong Kong. I thought China was, was fascinating. I, was, I really would like to get back there. It's a, an amazing, amazing place. 
China. It's a fascinating place. There's a lot of people there, I must say. Um, I have my difficulties when it comes to politics, but as a country itself and as a people, it's a lovely place, yeah. Let's talk a little about your, your current show. What are, what are some of the routines you perform? You said you have a three-ball routine. Can you kind of give us a rundown of, of your overall show? It's, you know, I do all the classic juggling props. I, you know, I do fire juggling. I do uh, cigar boxes. I do shaker cups. My, my, my all-time favorite prop is probably the Diablo, I must say. I do unicycling. I have a roller bowler routine. I do, I do things with Gatorade bottle flipping right now. I have a pedal ball thing. I do, I have about 200 hours of material. I can do in one circumstance or another. Some are better for cruise ships, some are better for the street. And lately I've been focusing a lot on interacting um, with my audience because I've sort of learned that the best reactions you usually get when when you get them out of people with, but because they're a part of the show. Like I do dance routines now with Grown Up Man and my show and it gets big reactions. So I've been working more and exploring where I can take that. Also I have in my notes that you had, had training in modern dance in mime. What kind of training have you had and what places did you did you take the training? So like when I first came, I was really, I suppose it's really sweet. Like I came to um, Ithaca, which is home of Cornell University. And um, I thought for a while, when, why don't I get my social work degree here? And I went to, to the college there and I tried to sign up and then they informed me that it's $45,000 a year, which came as a total shock as a German socialist, I guess, because education is for free if you qualify for with your grades in Germany. So that became immediately out of the out of the question. But then they told me like, look, you can take the classes without getting credit, then they only cost you fifty dollars per credit. Mm. But you don't right. get the credit. And I asked the person, is that for any class I want to take? And I said yes. So I went to the dance department and they had all these great classes and they had a really lovely teacher himself. And I took all mm. his classes from ballet to modern dance and dance improvisation. And I, I really just like working with my body and being flexible and doing it with other people and, and learning in general. I think taking classes is a, it's a real gift. I loved it really at the Motion Fest. It was an opportunity for variety entertainers to take classes in something we really enjoy. Yeah. And as far as the other training, did you also take training in mime with any particular mime artists? I took his classes, Tony Montanero. Um, so that's my mime training. And I have another show I do, which is a kid's circus show called Circus Wunderbar. And I have a mime character. I really liked it. But I also was always told that I'm not able to shut up. So I created a talking mime. And when I created the talking mime, I still wanted to learn how to do all the movement. I don't want to trick people into thinking that I'm, you know, that I'm a mime or be a bad mime for that matter. So I really put some effort in it took the classes and then I got Tony Mantonero's books and the videos and then for like a year I really practiced a lot yeah and quite frankly I do really like the core strength exercises you do in mime and the leg strengthening exercises I think they're really beneficial for life in general so did you spend some time at the celebration barn is that where you worked with Tony I spent some time there and then at the motion fest I took his extended workshop there as well yeah I never got to do the celebration barn that's a uh, that's in Maine correct yeah, it's main. It's a great place. Also, there I did a performance there. Like, was it last year? I did a, I did a show there. What a lovely place to do a show. And Fred Garbo was there, and I never met him before. And it was just lovely to meet some of the people who I always looked up to. Yeah, it's unfortunate that we don't really have many places to train. Is there other places in the United States that you can think of that 
allow you to sort of workshop your shows and learn from teachers? Because we don't, we no longer have Motion Fest. We don't have Motion Fest. However, we still have Celebration Barn, and then there is uh, Ithaca, for example, and now has a circus school, circus culture. And I'm converting my barn right now, and it's almost done. And I'm thinking about having sort of extensive workshop, 10-day workshops there, where I invite people like Avna to teach a 10-day workshop. Like Rob Torres, actually, who just, I don't know if you knew Rob, who passed away just recently. Yeah, I got to work with Rob at uh, Moisture Festival, and he was a lovely man, great talent. Uh, so Rob and I were really dear friends, and um, and he was supposed to do one workshop there. In the future, hopefully, there's going to be more places, and I think there will be more places. Because we have circus smokers, there's so many kids now who grew up with circus in comparison to like the 80s and 90s, perhaps. Well, that's my hope, at least, uh, that there's more kids now that uh, grew up with circus. And how do you see the industry going as far as like the future of being a professional juggler, do you think it's harder now? Do you think that there's more opportunity or less? I think both holds true. You know, I sometimes I feel sorry if you start now because you have the internet. Everybody can look great. Everybody can look great for two minutes, and there's so much fame now based on the two minutes. But it's the same token. It's United States has always been a place where you can create your own destiny and you can create your own market. I mean, think about all the different uh, possibilities we have here to perform. You have the college circuit that doesn't exist on most other countries on the planet. You have the fair circuit that doesn't exist in most other countries on the planet. You know, so you there's there's enough opportunity out there that you can really make it happen. And I, I really believe like um, if you work hard enough on your performance, you should be able to do it. I remember when you taught the workshop, it was such an eye-opening experience when you asked every person who was in a workshop how much hours a day they spend on their craft. And I don't know if you remember that, but there was hardly anyone who said more than two hours, which was somewhat flabbergasting if you think about how you expect to make a living or a career with something you only spend two hours on a day. And for me, in the beginning, it was like I treated it really like an eight-hour-a-day profession. And I think if you do that, I don't see no any reason why you shouldn't be able to make a living in your career what you chose. And that could be anything from knitting to being a juggler. It always surprised me as well. Is here's the thing that you want to do the most. It's just a part-time job. It's not even a full-time job where people are doing eight hours a day cooking hamburgers or working at 7-Eleven. And if you put eight hours a day into your juggling, not just your juggling, of course, but your advancement as a creative person, uh, not just your talents, but the business. Everything that goes from riding to staying physically in, sh in shape to making phone calls, you know, and then later on, once you are getting more established, that then also includes getting to the gig and so forth, and that's all part of the eight hours. But yeah, you should, if you put eight hours in a day after a year, you should be able to make it, yeah. And how do you handle the business side of things? Are you also someone who is pretty hands on with the bookings and the getting the gigs, or do you have uh, other someone people? Do you have office help, or how do you how do you handle your booking arrangements? Well, if I had a choice, I wouldn't like to do it, but I do it. I don't receive much joy out of it. I do receive the joy when you get the booking and so forth, but like signing contracts and, and setting up contracts, I don't like. But I know it's a necessary part of it, so I don't complain about it. Um, and I have had my wife, she helps me, she helps me with my costuming, with my promotional stuff, and, and also asking for more money because I was... I was always afraid to ask for more because I, I thought, oh, maybe I lose the work. And, and she was one who helped me really with that business aspect of it, getting the most out of each engagement. You know, it's surprising. I'm, I still worry about that. That's why I was lucky that my partner, Barry, was so good at asking for large amounts of money because 
I love to juggle so much that, I, that if someone offers me $150 to juggle, I'm like, you'll pay me to juggle? Even at this point in my career. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm very, I, I hear what you're saying. It was very similar for me. Let's talk about some of the jobs you had. There's one that intrigues me very much is you, you worked for the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. What kind of job was that? Yeah. So they do two operas, and one of them is Pagliacci, and it's a very short opera. And in the opening, I don't know if you're an opera fan, but in the opening scene, there's a big market scene, and there's a fire eater and a fire breather. And my good friend, Carl Salitaire, you probably know him, he he done it for previous years, and he gave them my number, thinking that I'm be able to do it. And I didn't know how to breathe fire or eat fire for that matter, but I was willing to learn it for that experience, and I did. And I, I did the Metropolitan gig, and it was a lovely experience. It was a great experience to be part of. Anyone should be backstage at some point in their life in the Metropolitan. And I just wanted to do it as an experience. It's, yeah, not something I would like to do all the time, but it was definitely a really fun experience. It was also when I just met my current wife, like Sarah, and what a cool thing to tell her. It's like, oh, I'm busy this afternoon. I have to go to rehearsals at the Met. Now, but, but fire eating, you told me, didn't stick. It wasn't a skill that you decided was going to be incorporated into your act. Back in Japan, when I started street performing, I did it. But no, it's ugh, yuck. I mean, Robert Nelson said, like, and I actually say to my show sometimes, like, fire eating was invented 2,000 years ago by an idiot. And I really do believe that, you know, so it's not something you want to do long term. I don't think there's happy endings. You don't make many people say, oh, I've been fire eating for 50 years. It's been working out great. I haven't heard that sentence yet. Well, because the fluid, it basically gets absorbed through your gums, no matter what. Even if you spit it all out, you're absorbing lighter fluid you know, through these very porous gums in your mouth. And, and unfortunately, we've had a couple of performers who've had either liver cancer or, or throat cancer. And you can kind of link it to a certain point in their career where they were doing a lot of fire eating, six or seven times a day type of shows. So I, I'd recommend against it. I recommend against it too. And of course, you know, it's... Unfortunately, there's, I guess there's not much samples out there so that it it's warrants like a, an extensive research on it. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you on this one. It seems to be a pretty logical conclusion that if you put lighter fluid in your mouth over, over decades, that cannot be good for you. Yeah, I was at a juggling festival a couple of years ago, and there was a fellow outside spitting fireballs. He wasn't, he wasn't getting paid for it. He was just doing it like as a fun activity. And, and he even had his little toddler kid uh, quite close to him, which was also seemed very disturbing. And I was just watching this guy squigging on that bottle. And I guess he was feeling that he was being very cool and, and kind of the center of attention at that moment or whatever. But I just thought, that is something I will never do. Never, ever do. You know, and I hear that, but also I know how, how fun it is to look at, especially for Panther, especially for audience members. You know, I mean, fire... There's a reason why so many, and I do it, I still juggle fire, it does get people's attention and it looks pretty, I mean, I get it. I really understand why people do it. It does get an audience interested in what you do and, and, and fire draws people to it, yeah, I get it. I always say that when you're, you're juggling, you're trying to increase the inherent interest of what you're doing. So simply by adding a knife or, or a fire, just, you do the same tricks, but just simply by adding that element, you've, you've increased the interest. Absolutely. But then again, you know, if you're a good storyteller, you know, you can make anything interesting, I do believe. Yeah, I'm a big believer in jokes. Yeah, and you're very funny. Adding jokes. And jokes pack very light. Like, you don't, like they don't take a lot of space in your, in your prop cakes. That's actually a nice way to put it. You're absolutely right. 
Now, how do you feel like doing the, the humor in English since German was your first language? Was that something you had to overcome and kind of understand the, the American sense of humor? If anything, it, it works to my it works to my benefit, I would assume. I, I think I get to say things perhaps you wouldn't be able to say or would come across as maybe rude because you're supposed to know better. But as a German, not being from here, I'm not really familiar with everything. So I can say things other people perhaps can't. If I mispronounce something, I get away with it more. And and some things are just funnier. You know, you know there's some classic street jokes out there people use you hear often. And they sound funnier with me often just because we have the accent on top of it. The silly thing is I don't even hear my own accent anymore, so which is really funny. As far as I'm concerned, I sound just like you. Now, the reputation of, of German people, though, is they don't have a sense of humor. Is that is that accurate? Is that something that's overstated? Or, or do you also find that, that your fellow Germans don't enjoy humor as much as the Americans? No. The reason why we don't have a sense of humor is because you guys don't speak German. Like, if you would speak German, you would never have that stereotype, you know what I mean? So, and, and we're a little bit perhaps more reserved and emotionally more close and so forth, yet we like to walk around naked more than any other country in the world. So, stereotypes are there for a reason, and I do believe that it does come across that we are a little bit more prude, perhaps, and a little bit more reserved, but the comedy is different. It's not that one, two, three punchline comedy as it's, it's here in the United States, and I'm stereotyping now again, you know, but German comedy is more storytelling. It's more often political satire and, and farce than it is perhaps like these one, two, three punchline jokes or joke telling. Yeah. You have comedy clubs now in Germany and late night television. It's Everything is becoming more homogeneous. Like everything is sort of melting into one anyhow. But we have stereotypes for a reason. I mean, yeah, I, I see why people think that. And quite frankly, I milk it, you know. I mean, so it works to my advantage, the stereotype of Germans not being funny. I think also we haven't really experienced the, the German celebrities we know in America are not what you would call funny people. I think we know Heidi Klum. You know, I don't know if we know a German yeah. comic who's made it big in America. No, I don't actually know German. I know plenty of German comics, but they'd make it they're funny in German. I don't know many funny. There is actually a few because uh, we did an article with, uh, what was it, uh, the Wall Street Journal a few years back, and it was all about Teutonic. They called it the Teutonic Comics Are Coming. And it's all about the German comics that's sort of going into the English market now. So there's a few out there, apparently. It's not that they're household names, no. Talking about articles, I was very impressed by the article you got in the New York Times. Can you, uh, people can sort of look on that on your website, they can see that article, or I guess go to the archives of the Times. How'd that come about? Because we're always trying to get great publicity. And that was a really very positive, uh, quite lengthy article in the New York Times. How did that come about? And what kind of suggestions can you give to other people to get publicity? So it might not be the suggestion other people would give because I didn't chase the article in the sense that I called the New York Times and said, hey, you should do an article on me. But many great things happened to me because I allowed myself to do things. If I had a career advisor, he would perhaps say, no, don't do that. That doesn't make no sense for your career. And the article came because... I, I was asked by a friend of my wife to do a daycare fundraiser in Connecticut, in a small town in Connecticut. And I did the fundraiser. There was really not that much in there for me, rather than the experience and being close to my wife's hometown and visit some friends. But I did it. But it happened to be that the editor from the New York Times had one of, the, one of her kids in the daycare. And she got interested in the show and in me, and she liked what I did. She did some research, and then she sent out a reporter to um, do a story on me. So basically, my advice there is 
I can't say that I got it because I approached it, but I do think you have to open yourself and, and don't deny perhaps experiences where you think they might not be worth it because you'd be surprised sometimes what comes out of things that might not look on paper they're beneficial for your career or even financially, but as an experience, it's definitely something you want to do and do it at least once and you might be surprised what comes out of it. You know, for example, another one was I did a tour with Real Dave Yankovic, where I was his opening act. And the reason I got that one was because I did a fraternity party, which really was the furthest thing in my mind I wanted to do. But one of the sound guys from Real L had a kid at the fraternity. He was there doing the DJing. And next one that thing led to the other. He loved my show. He loved me. And bang, I'm on tour with Real Dave Yankovic. You know, basically, try everything at least once. Open yourself up and good things will happen to you. I'm a big Weird Al fan. That must have been quite an experience. What was he like? Was he a, he comes across as a very good guy. For me, number one, he's a very great guy. And number two, I think if I had to pick my favorite audiences in the world, that had to be people who like Weird Al Yankovic. They really loved my character and my zaniness and they're sort of like this white age. And they, they, it was just, everything was perfect about it. It was great. Loved it. Yeah, it's nice to go to places where people are going to have a good time. The, the, the purpose of going there is to enjoy themselves. Like sometimes you do a corporate event or something, it's not like really they're there to have a good time. They're there because that's the entertainment that's provided. I imagine the Weird Al Yankovic fans, they're there because he puts on a fun, really... Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so they're there to laugh, they're there to have fun, and that's the best kind of crowd you could have. It's the best kind of crowd. That's why I like Renaissance fairs, because people really go to have a merry time, so to speak, and they have a few drinks that usually helps too. They lubricate the laughing muscles a little bit. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Real Day Yankovich. I mean, if you tank on a cruise ship or on a Real Day concert, it's tough to do because people really come with an expectations of having a good time. Well, but the cruise ships can be tough because the audiences are so mixed and you get on one of those exclusive high-end ships where the audience's average age is 70 or something and it, it gets a bit tough. And their parents, yeah. No, I know what you're saying. And then it's not just all that only depend. But I'm, I'm speaking of like if you have a cruise ship and the audience is there and the house is full. What often can happen is the last night of the cruise and they all have to get up at six in the morning and catch their flights and you're on at 10 or something. So there's certain variables that can work against you. But in general, if you have a crowd in there, and you have to also know your audience, absolutely. And often I found the people who buy a talent for cruise ships get it wrong by not doing their research about the entertainer, you know. So you have to know that the entertainer can speak to people who are past retirement age and also who come from 10 different countries. Yeah, it's a very uh, diverse situation where some of the ships or some of the situations I've been in, the crowd couldn't have been easier. It was like three standing ovations and just amazing. And then the very same show in a different environment, it's like crickets. It's it's uh, pulling teeth sometimes. Yeah, as Robert Nelson used to say, you're only as good as your last show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not that very good then, because no, what was my last show? <laughs> no, I've been, you know what's good about the, the Renaissance fairs is the fact you get to work with other entertainers. Let's talk about some of your, your friends in the business. Who are some of the acts or jugglers or other acts 
who you get to work with, who you want to give a shout out to, who you want to give some praise to. When we were talking about Johnny Fox earlier, and unfortunately he passed away, and then we were talking about like several people who passed away, like Robert Nelson was always one of my favorite, and I performed with him many times over, and Rob Torres, so now we, we covered the dead people, but um, there's plenty of people, I mean, it's too many to name, I mean, there's there's Peter Panic, there's Scott and Joan from Mutt's Gone Nuts, formerly Miss Audley Contact, Jesse and James, Aaron Bong, Paul Quendel. I mean, I could guess I could go on and on right here at the fair right now. I'm working with Bandaloni. He's a one-man band. And then there's Eggwold, a famous uh, MC for the circus. And there's a Chinese state circus here at the same time. I mean, that's another thing. I do believe that we have one of the nicest community uh, entertainers to, to be with. I experienced many other professions, and they don't seem to be as nice to each other. I don't know. I mean, I haven't hung out with plumbers much that much, but jugglers in general, you go to a convention, they're all so nice to each other. It's it's awesome. I find the, the street performers, the community of street performers are especially close because it's such a, a difficult but also rewarding type of performing. And it takes a certain character to, to sort of start on the streets and, and continue to do the streets when maybe they don't even have to. They have other options. Yeah, my character lends itself really nice for international festivals, skinny German juggle boy, you know, so you have that international element. And I have a street show that seems to work. And yeah, there's fantastic street shows like John Higby. I don't know if you know him. He's a yo-yo artist. Yeah, yo-yo guy. And then there's Ella Kazam, you know, and then we, you know Peter Panic, who's a great juggler in general and also a great street performer. And then formerly the gym show, the silly people, Lee Zimmerman. I mean, yeah, if you know how to do a great street show, it binds you with other street performers because it is an experience that really not many people will have. And also many people are absolutely frightened by it. Many people are frightened of like doing a performance in general. Now you compile it by having to do it on the street where it seems to be, for me, street performance to do a successful street show, especially if it's not in the realm of a festival, just where you show up in the corner is still one of the most difficult things to pull off. Yeah, and the festivals are a bit different in that they're more structured, the crowds, of course, are much bigger. I've had an opportunity to do some of the nice international festivals. Are there any ones that stick out in your mind? I like the one in uh, Dublin quite a bit. It's now Dublin and Cork uh, that's quite enjoyable. Yeah, that's a great festival. Yeah, I think they call it the Leila's World Cup, yeah, because they like the idea of a competition to bring in the sponsors. Yeah, and then and the, Canada has always been well known for this great street performer festival. I mean, our standing out festivals are like the Edmonton Street Festival, and then almost every province has a few street festivals, like there's Port Credits, there's Halifax. Internationally, I really like, uh, my favorite always was uh, the Christchurch World Busker Festival, I must say, and then Comedy festivals often have a street performer festival element, like the Melbourne Comedy Festival. There's a Fremantle Street Performer Festival. And yeah, they, they're great. Any city that celebrates street performing already has a thumbs up on my end. What a great festival to put on, too. And if it's done well, it's, it's just a really fun experience, yeah. And what do you think it takes to be a, a good street performer? you think that's a, a special skill? Is there one thing you can look at and go... That's what you need, really, to be a good street artist. I look at someone like Alec Kazam, who I've never seen or met, but he's certainly one of the guys who's looked at as, you know, the big crowds, the big yeah. hat getters. What do you think is that one thing that kind of makes the, the big shows stand out on the street? Well, you know, for me, the size of the show necessarily doesn't mean that you have the greatest show. You have a, right. definitely a great show that works. There's plenty of smaller shows that have great shows, but I think what it takes... The number one thing I think is total fearlessness. You have to be fearless. 
you know, you know, audiences pick up on whatever emotion you have inside, especially if you just play it to the outside, they pick up on that. And if you show fear or any doubt on the street, good luck trying to get an audience, forget about it. So being fearless and um, confident, which goes with fearlessness, I assume, and it always helps to have a big track, you know, something that's, that stands out and it's tall, loud, on fire, better yet, all of the three combined. Well, at a certain point, the Polacks came in, where it was basically get up high because more people can see you, even if it's not like a skill thing like a tall unicycle, simply getting up on a big platform. It can be a skill thing. doesn't necessarily have to be. I totally understand why people do it. It becomes an economic decision. The higher you get, the more people get to see you show and, and the more money you will make at the end. So I totally understand why people do it. My unicycle has been getting shorter. It started <laughs> off as 10 foot and then nine, eight, seven, six, five. Now I'm doing a five foot unicycle, but I also don't rely that heavily on tips anymore. And most of my gigs are paid. I do the occasional street performer festival, but the street performer festival is sometimes really far from the experience of real street performing. Because as we, as we talked about it, people come with the expectations of seeing a street show, therefore knowing what it entails. They have already small notes or coins set up to tip the street performers. Many street performer festivals, you don't even have to do a head pitch. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, but to put on a real street show and make good money on it, that's that's a real gift. and uh, Not a gift, it's a talent where you have to work on, yeah. Yeah, and some people have made that decision that they're, they're street performers. That's their sort of purpose as an entertainer. Sometimes it does kind of pigeonhole you in that life because that type of performing can be very seductive. It's very exciting to be in the middle of a big crowd like that. But to be honest, almost every street performer I, I met, yeah, even so they might do a lot of street shows and that's their main income, Almost everyone wants to at least experience a different venue or is at least curious about it. There's some performers who exclude themselves just by the nature of what they do, like, you know, nakedness, crudeness, um, you know, uh, fire, for example. When you, If you do fire these days, there's really not that many venues you can do anymore but street. Indoor venues are pretty much out of the question. Most Renaissance fairs don't let you do fire anymore. Really? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There, I mean, there have been incidences. I mean, we got away with murder for a long time, I must say. I'm surprised that there haven't been more stories out there of tragic incidences than there have. I remember when you could do fire on the cruises. When could you do that? Oh, you can still, but there, there's really? paperwork that's as thick as a Brooklyn phone book you have to fill out, and you have to have flyer retardant stuff, and you have to have fire extinguishers. So it's not worth it, and it becomes more and more difficult. Oh, like then another example would be like, it's not just like fire, but it's also like if you, you know, Gaza probably most yes. likely, or who is. If your comedy is not clean enough, good luck to find indoor venues that book you these days. You know, we're becoming more and more sensitive towards language. And in the street still is, well, if you don't, people who don't like your show, there's nobody to complain to. Most people who are smart and they don't like something, they just move on. So you don't have to live with the people who don't like you. Um, but yeah, you, you become a street performer by the by, by the very nature of what you're doing because there's not many other places where you can do what you do on the street. And I think some also, they incorporate the pitch too much, meaning that the pitch and the crowd dynamics become such a big part of their show that you take away the crowd gathering, you take away the money passing, and they've lost, you know, half of their show. Oh, it's amazing. You know, like my very first trip I did, I went out and I was supposed to do 45 minutes. And after 20 minutes, I was done thinking I did my full show. 
And then the cruise director got somewhat upset with me, and she said that I do have to have 45 minutes. And when I asked her how much I did, she said, not more than 25. And then I realized that so much on the street is, is I wouldn't call it necessarily fluff, yeah. um, because the fluff often is entertaining, but it, it is basically getting a crowd, doing crowd control, doing crowd physics of arranging them in a place. And when you do a theater, especially the theater doesn't have wings where people come in and out, then you have nothing to feed off. The house is dark often, so you have to run your material. And if you don't interact then with people, then all of a sudden you just have your routines. And often on the, in a street show, the routines only make 20, 30% of the entire show. It was a pretty rude awakening. Yeah. yeah, and the thing on the cruise ship too is a lot of times the cruise director won't watch the entire show. They'll come for like the last four or five minutes so they can get you off the stage at the end. And if you end early and they're not there to see you off at the end, it really sort of looks bad for you as a performer because they, they weren't able to do their job and get you off the stage. That's what happened to me. I didn't make anybody look good, including myself. I mean, even though the audience didn't know that sort of 20 minutes were good, but I was supposed to do 45. So my recommendation is if you're a street performer going on, on the stage on a cruise ship, make sure you have 45 minutes of material that doesn't involve um, making fun of people walking by. Yes. And now, as far as advice, what kind of advice would you give people who are you know, in the midst of their career or just starting their career as far as you're a very successful performer. You're, it seems like you're very steadily booked. You have a great reputation on the circuit. Everyone I talk to uh, speaks very highly of you, which is, which is always nice. You've really kind of done it very well. You've created this unique juggling show, your unique personality and character. What do you think is maybe a secret or two that you could pass on to some other people wanting to do what you're doing? Well, there's a few things. I mean, come on swinging, I think. Really, don't go on a ship because you really, really want to be on the ship. Go on a cruise ship because you know you have an hour of 10 minutes of material that's strong. Because there's certain venues, it's tough to get second chances. Yeah. And cruises are often of them because once you don't do well on a ship, it's not all that hard to book your first ship. It's somewhat difficult then to keep going because you have to have a good show for it. So come out swinging, know your strengths, listen to the people who come before you. You know, the, there's, you know, there's a saying, you, you see that far because you're standing on the shoulders of the people who become before you and just really pay attention to um, the people who came before you. Take as many classes and workshops and enrich yourself. Any strengths you have, put it in there. Make, make it your strengths and pay attention to your show. If you do a joke a hundred times that doesn't work, don't ignore it. Pay attention. Take it out or do something with it. Film your show. Watch yourself. Ask other people what they think about it. You know, don't always listen to them, of course, but pay attention enough that you fix things that need fixing. You often know exactly what needs to be done, and often we're really good at ignoring it and, and keep doing the same thing. We talked about it in your workshop that once you have a show that somewhat works, it's really easy just to keep it because there's enough opportunity out there. Just constantly enrich it and go with the times. I see so many performers who still do jokes, like Hillary Clinton jokes and, and, and Bill Clinton jokes, like Monica Lewinsky jokes, you know? Right. It's just, I don't know, they current. But basically just pay attention. If you pay attention, and to, especially to your own show, you know if it's good, if it's good enough, or if it needs work, and play to your strengths, yeah. Yeah, and you have to listen to the crowd. They'll let you know if it's working or not. And you you have to get that feedback from them to really and, and sort of take it in kind of a non-judgmental, non-egotistical way. If, if I think a joke is funny, but the audience isn't laughing, well, it's funny to me, but it's not something I would keep in my show. To listen to that feedback and, and don't plateau. 
don't plug tour, that's a really good way to put it. Pay attention, that's a really good thing. I mean, the nice thing now is the internet. I mean, there's so much stuff out there, so much things you can learn. I mean, everyone has a master class these days, you know. I mean, there's great books now. I remember when I took you workshop in comedy writing, there were like a few books out there on comedy writing. The other day I did some research, I did some search on Amazon and there were like dozens over dozens of books. Back then there were like two, three books out there on, on comedy writing. I mean, there's, there's a lot of knowledge out there. The internet is a great tool, you know, to advance whatever you do. And you know, we're coming towards the end of our podcast. That went very quickly. It was fascinating talking to you. I really, like I said, we really haven't spent much time for a year. I mean, I think, as you say, you took my workshop years ago. But our past really haven't crossed very much. What is the, what is the future for Hill Behold? What, what do you see moving forward that you want to accomplish that you haven't accomplished? Or do you see your career at a certain point winding down for you to do something else? It's interesting. So like, you know, when, my, um, when I was the mother of my children, my, the, uh, the wife was married once. Was, she always said, like, you should be famous. You should be famous, you know. And I'm like, there is no such thing as a famous juggler, you know. So I never, I mean, name we, we know famous jugglers because we're in the business, of course. You know, Francis Byrne and you know, Michael Motion and you guys, the Vespini brothers, you know, are considered famous within the jogging world. But if you ask any punter on the fair outside here right now, name a famous juggler, they're just going to stare at you. So I'm somewhat happy with the place I am. So I, you know, for me, I get to work in all the venues I really enjoy. I get to hang out with the people I love. So for me, longevity is like, I guess, my goal to, to be in shape, to be able to do what I love to do for as long as possible and don't stop advancing and, and creating new things, basically. But I don't have any dreams of becoming like a household name. I say no to most television appearances, um, like America's Got Talent and so forth. These things don't really mean all that much to me. I said no to Vegas engagements because I quite like where I am. So for me, spending time with the ones I love and, and doing what I love and doing it as long as I can and staying in shape. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us here on the Drop Everything podcast. It was really nice chatting with you and learning a little bit more about your story. I'd like to thank everybody who's listening and I'd especially like to thank Hilby, the skinny German juggler boy. And may I say, juice, or is that a Wiedersehen? Tschüss und Dankeschön. Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Lederhosen. Thank you so much again, Hilby. Lederhosen. Oh, yes, thanks, Dan. I hopefully I'll see you down the road. Lederhosen. Lederhosen. Thanks, thanks. Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 61. I'm wearing my Lederhosen in honor of Hilby, the skinny German juggle boy. Thank you, Hilby. I enjoyed our chat, and best of luck as you bring merriment and laughter to audiences around the world. All right, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about the IJA can be found at juggle.org. Make sure to join their great group, hear about their programs and events, and join us next year in Indiana for the IJA Festival. All right, now go out there and drop everything, except when you're juggling.